Welcome back to the Buzz on Business. My name is Ryan Gabriel, and today we have a great episode for y'all. Our guest today is an OSU alumni, professor of practice, self-proclaimed master of data analytics, and an entrepreneur. You've probably seen around campus. It's Jerry Rackley. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this. Awesome. We'll start off the podcast today talking a little bit about your resume. So from undergrad till today, what's been going on in your life? Talk to me about that. <laughs> well, I, I really wandered quite a bit, actually. When I was planning to come to school here at OSU, I was initially, believe it or not, a forestry major. Really? Fascinating. I was. I thought, you know, I'm going to get a forestry degree and spend my life out in the woods, and that still sounds quite appealing, actually. But right before my freshman year started, I got a job at the data center here on campus. And I worked there a month before school started. Two weeks into it, I was like, this is it. I want to do computer science. I went and switched majors and started as a freshman in a computer science major and, and finished. That's the degree I got. And I thought all along the way, you know what? I'm going to learn how to write software and I'm going to go get a job as a programmer and really, up until the last semester of college, I thought that's exactly what I was going to be doing. But IBM had different ideas. They encountered me, and we talked. I got to know the representative that served the OSU campus really well. We went to lunch a couple times, and he helped me out a great deal and convinced me that IBM would be a great career path in sales and marketing. And one of the things he said was, Jerry, look at the top of the IBM organization, the CEO that we have now, the ones we've had in the past. Guess where they came from? They were all promoted from within through the sales ranks. And I thought, that sounds good. Not that I imagined I would be the CEO someday, but I like that kind of upward mobility. So I said yes to IBM right as I graduated, went into sales and marketing professionally, and never looked back and never wrote a line of code. <laughs> That's fascinating. So talk to me about your kind of moving up in the ranks. Um, you actually, I know, started your own company too. Talk a little bit about that. How did you excel in your career path? Yeah, well, I learned a lot at IBM. I was there for 10 years, one of the biggest companies in the world, great training, great experience. But I had the opportunity to come back to Stillwater. I had moved around a couple times with IBM. Stillwater was the home I had come to love. My parents lived here. And a guy I worked with in college at the data center had started a software company, a guy named Russ Tubner. Okay. And I started talking to him over Thanksgiving one year when I was back in Stillwater. And before you know it, I had accepted a job, left IBM, and went to work as the 29th employee at what was just past a startup company. So I did that for several years, really liked it. We acquired some companies and then got acquired. So I got you know, the experience of going through that process of a merger and acquisition, which was really valuable experience for me to have. But along the way, I kind of became the corporate marketing guy, handling marketing and public relations. And when we got big enough, we had an outside firm that helped us do some of these things, an agency. And I worked very closely with the agency and the lady who owned the agency. She said something to me one day, that really got me. And she said, hey, if you ever decide to leave, I would hire you. And that's when the light bulb came on. I ultimately left that company, formed my own one-man show consulting firm, Rackley Communications is what I called it. Very, I love the name. Very creative, <laughs> very right? Creative. Great branding. <laughs> um, and I had clients immediately. This lady did, in fact, hire me to do some outside contract work. And it was fun. I got to work with clients in 
around the world. I had a client in Israel. I had a client in Finland. I had a client in Canada, um, all over the U.S., and I was making pretty good money. And I, I learned one of the entrepreneurial lessons that a lot of us have to learn. You think when you work for yourself, you own your own time. You can take vacation whenever you want, and it turns out you can't really take vacation at all because yeah, you're more you're, of a workaholic. You, oh well, yeah, you're on all the time, right? It's exactly. only you. There's no one else there to get the work done when you're not there. And working equated to generating income. If I wasn't working, I wasn't making money. So, um, but it was good. I learned a lot, and I finally did actually land a local client, a bank here in town. It's now Simmons. It used to be Stillwater National. The CEO encountered me, needed some help. After about six months of doing work for that bank, I became their marketing executive, and I worked there for seven years. And that was a really important part of the journey because one of the things I discovered is I didn't really like financial services. Mm. That was that fair was enough. Not not my um, not my favorite area or industry to work in. So I, I finally left, and it was the one of the toughest career decisions I have ever made because normally you like to leave one job and have another one to go to, right? You just like that security. That's typically how it goes, I would say. If you could script it, you'd script it that exactly, way, right? Exactly, I agree. And, and I finally got to the point where I realized I can't stay. I have to go. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have to go. And the real validation for me was I was out on a bike ride with my oldest daughter. And she's really smart and very wise. And I, I said, what would you think if I left the bank and I didn't have a job to go to right away. And she just looked at me like, what has taken you so long to come to this conclusion? <laughs> so I did, and that's really when uh, my association with OSU ramped way up. I was already teaching a class, but I started teaching more classes and um, started doing more outside consulting like I did when I was the CEO of Rackley Communications. Gotcha. And uh, it really was a great fit and a great balance for me. Okay, that to me, that makes total sense. So talk to me about kind of your passions. I know I took some of your classes, very much enjoyed them, um, but the consistency with that was marketing and data analytics. Talk to me about data analytics. I know that's kind of your specialty, kind of your secret sauce. What's your opinions on that? I'm a big advocate for analytics. And when we added marketing analytics as one of the requirements for a marketing degree, I had the opportunity to develop that class. Uh, analytics is really how business gets done now. And you've heard various statistics, probably some of the same ones I have. And I don't know what the exact figures are, but in the last three or four years, something like 90% of all data that has ever existed in the history of mankind has been created in the last three or four years. Really? So there's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge number. Don't know what the exact number is, but there's a lot. And, and what's happening is businesses are discovering that data is an asset, and in many cases, underutilized. Mm -hmm. And... The businesses that have figured out, hey, let's take the data that we have, let's figure out how to leverage it to either become more competitive, make more money, do a better job pleasing customers, come up with better products and solutions. And we're seeing it happen all across the, the industry in ag, in travel, in healthcare, all kinds of industrial sectors have now become very data-driven. And we're seeing it in sports, right? Are. They are using... Um, you know, analytics to evaluate players, even to call plays, right? When you watch a football game, and I saw one this past season when Troy Aikman was one of the commentators, and they were about to run like a fourth and one play, and Joe Buck was like, oh, I don't think they should do this. And Troy Aikman's response was, yeah, but that's what the analytics are telling them to do. 
Fascinating. You realize that analytics have infiltrated into all kinds of industries. So you really can't do business effectively, successfully, and competitively unless you are embracing the data. And that makes total sense. It sounds like you would think an easy transition bringing in data analytics. Was that the case with these industries or was it more kind of a back and forth? They didn't want to change their ways. Wasn't the case at all. In fact, I used the movie Moneyball in my class to teach that very lesson that the story, Billy Bean, the Oakland A's manager who wanted to bring in an analytics approach to finding players and putting them in positions on the field and he encountered tremendous resistance from everyone in his own team, his field manager, his dugout manager, all of his scouts. It was just him and his assistant manager, who was an econ grad from Yale, who really supported doing this against all this resistance. It ended up being successful for them, but it wasn't easy. So there's a big kind of cultural piece to this, that if you're going to decide to become data-driven, you're going to have to figure out how to make the cultural piece work. Gotcha. So where would you say we are now in that transition? Are we more kind of everybody's accepting data analytics? Or are we still kind of pushing the limits or the walls, if that makes sense? It makes total sense. And I think we have definitely reached a tipping point. But let me speak specifically to marketing. Because marketing is kind of one of the last parts of the organization to get on board the analytics train. And the reason is simply because we have always in marketing considered ourselves to be a creative profession. And clearly, you know, creativity matters a lot, right? Remember, this, this, we, we just had the Super Bowl and all the ads that we saw. And a lot of my students were asking me uh, the class period right after the Super Bowl, what was your favorite ad? And one of the ones I mentioned was the Coinbase ad. Oh, it was brilliant. Wasn't it brilliant? brilliant. I mean, it was, it was simp simple and yet effective. And we talked about this in some of the classes and... One of the students said, yeah, everybody at my watch party got their phones out and immediately scanned the QR code. Oh, same thing here. We were all trying to get it. Because we wanted to see where it went, right? And, and so the creative piece is still very important. It still matters a lot. But the organizations, the marketing organizations that have figured out how to keep the creativity and pair it with data and analytics are the ones that are really doing a great job. And that Coinbase commercial is a brilliant example they have a ton of analytics they collected as a result of running that ad, and they can use that to make decisions about how to reach more customers and engage the customers they did reach through that ad. And so you just you can't be great at marketing if you're not involved in analytics. You can be good, but you can't be great. No, that makes total sense. I kind of want to transition now more to the uh, educational side of your life. Talk to me a little bit about kind of, I know you got your degree at OSU, go Pokes. Um, also your MBA, you had an interesting route with the MBA. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I knew from the time I graduated with my undergraduate, uh, this will tell you how old I am, in <laughs> 1983. So what, 35? It, what's that? 35 years old, right? Um, <laughs> it depends on how you count. You know, marketers sometimes are not the best counters. Um, let's just suffice to say I'm old. But I always intended to get my MBA. I thought it was a good idea back then, and I kind of naively said to myself, you know what, I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to make a little bit of money, kind of get established professionally, and I'm going to go get my MBA. And it sounded like a good plan, but then life kind of happened. And I got married, and I got a mortgage, and I had a car payment, and a kid comes along, and you don't have the opportunity to just go back to the bank and say, listen, can I stop paying my mortgage for a couple <laughs> years while I go get my MBA? 
And you can't go to your employer and say, is it okay if I like take a one-year sabbatical so I can get my MBA, but I need you to still pay me, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Now, I wasn't fortunate enough to have an employer who paid for my MBA, um, but you know that's another whole discussion. If you can find one like that, it's great. So I waited and waited and waited. And then years later, I come to OSU and become an adjunct professor. And then we start to get a lot more serious about accreditation. We want to be very strong when it comes to accreditation here at OSU and in the Spirit School. Well, one of the accreditation requirements was if you're going to teach undergrads, you have to have a master's degree. And I didn't have one. And fortunately, we have a very understanding dean uh, and our department head. They, they both were always expressing, you know, Jerry, how much we appreciate you. But at the same time, they said, we need you. These are my words, not theirs. We need you to not be an accreditation problem for us. So I, I realized, okay, it's time. I got to go get it. So I started a MBA program totally online, and I finally earned my MBA in August of 2020. There you go. Congratulations. Thank you. It was great feeling to get it done. And if I can say so, I got it with honors. Ah. And so it's kind of interesting because I think once in a while I get into a conversation with a student who says, well, you don't know what it's like to you know, have to, to go to school these days and take courses online. I'm like, um, yeah, actually I do. <laughs> <laughs> while you're also working full time. Yeah, I know uh -huh. what that's like. So Balancing both worlds. I'm going to talk a little bit about myself. Um, I actually do want to get my MBA. What would you suggest for me? Because I actually plan kind of going around your route. So maybe getting a little bit more experience and then doing that. Based off your experience, would you suggest doing that? And maybe other students listening, what would you suggest for them? You know, I don't think there's one formula that works for everybody. I think there's things you have to take into account. I think it's a huge advantage for me, a huge advantage that I had all these years of professional experience, right? Uh, not to say I didn't learn anything in my MBA program. I learned a lot. But as I was learning, I was thinking to myself, yes, I've experienced that. I've dealt with that. You know, I could see issues from my past and how they were being presented in the classroom. And that was a big, big advantage for me. So that's one side of the MBA coin. The other side is you're never probably better equipped to get it as you are when you finish up your undergraduate degree. You've already been in school, right? You're used to studying and you know how to do it well. And just it's easy to just keep going, especially if you can do it full time and get it in like a year. I did it in two years because I was working obviously full time. So I think you just have to factor in, you know, what's your life situation? What are your plans? Are you you have a great job offer you can't say no to because it's it's too good to pass up? Do you have plans to get married? You know, what what's what's your situation and factor all those things in? and make the decision that's best for you. No, that makes total sense. I appreciate that. Talk to me a little bit now about your impact at OSU's campus. What is that goal for you? Is there something specific that you think about daily of like, what do I want to invest on this campus specifically into students? I think that um, my impact is maybe in a couple areas. One is I'm, I'm a practitioner. So if you look at faculty, they fall into one or two camps. You know, there's the tenure track PhD faculty that have done way more work academically than I ever will. And they do research. And then there's people like me who still today continue to practice their profession that they are teaching in the classroom. And we need both, right? And so I think one of my contributions here in the Spear School is to bring that real world perspective into the classroom. And, and for example, in my digital marketing class, 
which I teach uh, in the fall semester, I would often be talking about something in the classroom, and then I would relate a story about something I did that very week for a client I work with. And, and so I think it's, it's very good to reinforce it and show that it's real and I really have done this work. And um, I think students like that. They like the real oh, world absolutely. practical application. Yeah. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece is I just really value the relationships that I get to develop with students. And listen, not all students opt to have a relationship with me, but some do. And it's very memorable. And, and I think the way I would describe it is I want to be a success lever for students. And I will be when they choose to come and, and get to know me and let me get to know them and take advantage of my experience and my connections. I'm always happy to do everything I can to help them. And in fact, as we're recording this podcast, today's Career Fair Day. It is. And every year I go over to the Career Fair and walk around for two reasons. One is I love to see all the former students that are back and it's a fun reunion for me. But the other piece is I go there to help the students I have right now because I run into so many of them and they'll stop me and they'll say, who do you think I should talk to and what should my approach be? And I'll grab them and we'll walk over to an employer and I'll make an introduction. I want to help them. Um, and that's, that's what I hope my impact is, is that we have a lot of students who've, who've been uh, in my class can say, yeah, he helped me get where I am. Absolutely. And I'm definitely one of those cases. You have helped me in so many ways I can't even begin to describe. So students listening on this podcast, definitely, if you want to reach out to those professors, they're here to help. They want to help. Jerry, talk to me a little bit about kind of advice you would give to students, especially for the career fair today. Let's kind of sit on this topic. How should we approach um, people hiring us? What should we um, dress like? What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good advice out there for you know, how you should dress. I remember when I was, you know, where you're sitting, totally different set of advice than there is now, right? We, we've got a different work environment, and I'm thankful for that. Um, I, I think the advice that I would give mirrors advice I got um, right as I was graduating, and that is you, you have to take ownership of your career and your life, your happiness, because you can't outsource that and, and I say that because I, I was very naive when I graduated. I assumed I was going to go to work for IBM, and there would be a manager over me, and there was. And that manager would do everything that needed to be done for me, would make sure that I was you know, considering the right career paths and choices and give me the opportunities I needed. And the truth is that was quite naive. And, and I remember my mentor at IBM several years ahead of me career-wise, sat me down at lunch one day and said, hey, you know what? You, you have to own this stuff. There's an account in this branch office that you want to be on. Don't just sit there and wish that your manager's going to know that and put you on that account team. No, go talk to that account team. Find out what they need. Go see your manager. Ask the question, what do I have to do to be on that account team? Take ownership. No one's going to manage your career better than you. And so that's the, the advice that I want to give to the students is it's on you. You're your career manager. You're your success manager. Don't count on someone else doing it for you or doing it better than you can. That makes perfect sense. Talk to me a little bit about have you read any books that may helped you develop your professional kind of uh, persona? Talk to me about that. Yeah, actually, there's several books. I read a lot. Um, I'm always reading something. So the funny thing is, 
I don't read as many business books as you might expect, but one of the business books that was extremely influential uh, on me as a marketer was a book called Positioning the Battle for the Mind. It's an old book. It came out, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s. It's a really simple read, but it's considered a marketing classic. And it really explains how the task of a marketer is to figure out how to carve out a position in the mind of a customer for whatever it is you're trying to sell to them. So I'll spare you, you know, the in-depth explanation of the whole concept, <laughs> but it's a good read. Um, for me, though, I probably get more out of reading other like nonfiction books that I can just take lessons from. I'll give you an example. Um, one of my favorite authors is a guy named John Krakauer. And he wrote a book in the late 90s called Into Thin Air. Some of you who are listening may have heard about this book, but it documents the 1996 expedition to Summit Mount Everest. It's every, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting in and of itself. If you like that kind of thing, it's, it's a great read. But there was a real business application for me. And so it, it's a tragic story. That season, eight people died in the attempt to summit Mount Everest. And John Krakauer was on one of the, the teams that made a summit bid. And he was successful, by the way. He got to the summit, turned around and came down, got back to Camp 4, and was in his tent trying to sleep when the disaster unfolded. And what happens on Everest is late in the day, usually terrible storms can hit. And so when you read this book, what you find is that the leaders of the expeditions that year were all saying the same thing. We are optimizing for safety, right? We're going to get you to the top if we can, but we're going to keep you safe no matter what. Safety is priority number one. And so one of the rules was if you're not on the summit by 2 p.m., I don't care if you're 100 meters away, you are turning around and coming down. So the day of the summit bid, what happens? Well, they've built their entire expedition around safety, and in the day of the summit bid, everyone who's paid a lot of money to try and get to the summit all said, you know, we're so close. Can we just keep going? And so the leaders of the expedition relented. And at 4 o'clock, they still had people trying to get to the summit. A terrible storm hit. People were stranded and, and literally dropped where they were and froze to death. Eight people died. And that's what happens. So my business lesson is when you optimize around a certain mission, but then you decide very expediently, no, we're going to do something different. Then sometimes disaster can strike. And you have to just be willing to stick to what's important and do it the right way or sometimes the risks. No, that makes total sense. That's a very sad story, but a very huge lesson to learn. Last thing I want to talk about today, what has been the most rewarding moment on this campus for you? You know, the rewarding moments, a lot, a lot of small ones, but I'll give you an example that happened uh, just this past homecoming. Uh, I was walking to the campus because we had a display set up in the Keystone lobby of the Spears building, and so our department head, Tom Brown, and I were, were going to be there and meet alums as they were coming through. And so I parked off campus, just walked onto campus, and was walking past the Alumni Center. And someone yelled out my name, hey, Professor Rackley. And I turned and looked. And here was this young lady that is a former student of mine. And I said, I walked over and said hi. And, and she said, you were one of my favorite professors. I learned so much in your class. 
and it was totally unexpected. And I said, that deserves a hug. <laughs> so I gave her a hug, and we visited for a little while. Uh, and I walked away. I mean, that made my whole day. It made my whole week. Just that, you know, number one, I had that impact on her, but then she would bother to tell me about it and, and ascribe so much importance to the success she was having today as a professional. I thought as I was walking away, that's why I'm here and that's what I want to do. Absolutely. Well, that's the one thing I can definitely say to you. And I actually wanted to say in person, I definitely want to thank you for everything you've given me. I actually have learned a lot in your class, um, despite what all the other students say. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Learned a lot, and I really appreciate all the time you've invested in me. Um, so I appreciate appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for giving me a chance to get to know you and to make that investment. Absolutely. And I'll tell you the deal that I make with students like you. I say, listen, I don't have a really great retirement plan. So <laughs> when you get out there in a professional world and you have all the success I know you're going to have, I want you to come hire me as a consultant pay me some really nice consulting fees, but not expect much actual work. So that's okay. kind of my retirement plan. Okay, we'll put you on the wait list. <laughs> Great. So the last thing we do on this podcast, I haven't prepped you at all for this, but it's a lightning round of questions. It'll be about 60 seconds to this or that questions. Are you ready? I don't know, but do we have a choice? Uh, no. <laughs> all right, let's go. So first off, beach or mountain? Mountains. Really? I would say beach. Opposites. That's all right. We can disagree and still be <laughs> friends. Coffee or energy drink? I don't drink coffee at all, so really? I guess energy drink. Okay. Would you rather do a road trip or fly to your destination? You know, that depends on the destination, but probably a road trip. Gotcha. Basketball or football? Football. Okay. Soda or water? Water. There you go. Healthy route. And lastly, would you rather listen to podcasts or read books? I, I read. Read. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Those that are listening, give us a follow at OSU Entrepreneurship and Spears Business OSU on Instagram. Thank you so much. And we'll see you guys later. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.